0: Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Feuders, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest.
1: Well, welcome to the podcast today, and uh, it is my honor to have on the podcast Dr. Jeffrey Garcia. Dr. Garcia, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Well, it is, uh, as I said, truly my pleasure, and uh, we're looking forward to get to know you a little bit and uh, find out a little bit about who you are, and maybe that's the best place for us to start. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Dr. Jeffrey garcia I'll probably drop the doctor here soon, but I, I just, uh, That's you know, fine. <laughs> I want to make sure people know that, uh, you're a smart guy and, uh, it's, uh, it's great for us to be able to have you on the, uh, on the show today. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and, um, and then maybe we'll go from there.
0: Okay, great. Well, again, thanks for having me. Uh, um, I am an assistant professor of New Testament and Second Temple Literature at Nyack College. Our campus is in Lower Manhattan, and I have been teaching there now for, well, I started actually in 2008 as an adjunct. In 2013, I came on to the faculty full-time while completing my doctorate. Um, I am born and bred in New York City. Um, I'm originally from East Harlem. If anyone knows anything about the city, they know that is a fairly rough inner city sort of uh, part of New York. Um, and uh, the way I came to uh, my field, as it as it is now, um, or my studies, was I originally went to NYU College as a student in 2000. Um, Actually, 2001, because my hmm. first semester was the same semester as nine eleven, 11 And the school was, very, was actually very close at the time to uh, the towers. Um, and I began wow. studying there with a professor who had lived in Israel for 16 years, done his Ph.D. at Hebrew University um, and had just joined NIAC faculty, moved to New York, uh, originally from Oklahoma, uh, by the name of Stephen Notley. Um, and I took Greek with him, and that was my first class studying with him. Um, If you know anything about Dr. Notley, you know that if you are in a class with him and you touch on a particular subject, he will send them off on a rabbit trail into very interesting kinds of conversations. So, of course, (laughs) when Greek got hard that semester, we would throw in topics that we had learned were sort of the thing that would get him going. Um, And the stuff that he said and the experiences that he had living in Israel for 16 years completely uh, changed the track that I was on. I was actually on a pastoral ministry track. um, And that was based on a prayer that I had said as an assistant youth pastor years prior. Um, I was praying to God, asking him that I wanted to know the Bible as well as possible in whatever way that is. And I had no idea of a PhD, MA, any of that stuff had no idea about languages. Um, I may have said the prayer differently if I knew um, the amount of languages I would have to learn. Um, but I met him and it, it just, it felt um, there was a pull there. Uh, it, 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 What I describe as a, as a calling and in, in a new direction. And that was uh, biblical studies. And, I followed him around like a duckling does to a duck. Um, (laughs) Every class he taught, I would sit with him, ask for advice. And he's really the one that mentored me into um, uh, the ability or the track to study, you know, ancient Judaism and Christian origins, which is sort of how we describe the field. Um, and he was the one who directed me to programs that would be good in this particular topic. Um, and as a result, I ended up at NYU, um, which most people don't think as, you know, where, where a Christian would go to learn the Bible. Um, but they have a small department in Hebrew and Judaic studies, which is a completely Jewish department. I was maybe one of three non-Jews, Gentiles. Um, in the entire uh, in the entire cohort, um, and it was amazing. They were great. Um, it was a great department. Uh, it was very different than the reputation that NYU has been given. Uh, there were people of faith there. Um, they were serious about studying the Bible in terms of its language, culture, history, um, and that's exactly uh, what I wanted. Um, and that's eventually how I ended up. Sort of circling back to NIAC was I was studying in New York, uh, looking for uh, places to teach at, and NIAC Nyack had an open door. Yeah, you
1: know, that's amazing, and uh, th- thanks for sharing that little bit about about sort of the shift. You know, the the call, because I think that uh, that is just so critical when we think about uh, when we think about. You know what it is that god has asked us to do and i was really curious actually i read some of your profile online and and uh i thought okay so so here's a theology student i wonder I wonder how how do you get to uh, you know to be part of the faculty at the school that you studied at, and uh, that's a great story. I think that it's so key, and uh, this is probably just for free for anybody who's listening out there. It's it is so key that we uh, that we key in on those little nudges from the Holy Spirit and the things that God is is saying to us, uh, you know about. Our direction for life, and sometimes we get so focused in on on something, and uh, we all have our own stories, you know. But I never imagined that I would be the executive director of a of a ministry, a charity that supports, um, you know, Christian and mess- messianic yeah. ministries in Israel. I, I was a yep. pastor for over thirty years, and and then this shift happened in in my life. So it's great to uh, great to hear your story. Now the the topic of study um you know one of the things that we love to do when we travel around canada and the us and mm-hmm. and, and talk to congregations and and teaches is, is talk about the hebraic roots of faith mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit and to our listeners about how important it is to understand the words that jesus in particular says to us the words that the that the uh, apostles say to us the writers of the new testament how important is it for us to understand those words in the the Hebrew context?
0: Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, for me, the the whole track to studying this stuff, whatever it has multiple names, Hebraic roots, Second Temple Period stuff, Second Temple Period Judaism, ancient Judaism, Christian origins, whatever you might call it, it all it, it all saying the same thing that we try to understand the New Testament um, within its own ancient context, right? However you Mm -hmm. might describe that. And for me, um, what the reason for me, it was so important is that when, when professor Notley, for instance, or someone else I was studying with, began to um, put particular texts in their original context, it just shed so much light on the meaning of those passages that it just made sense that the right way to move forward was to try to put these texts back into their original ancient Jewish context, right? To find the Hebraic roots. Um, The two examples that I use, because my New Testament students every semester are faced with a very inconvenient truth. And that inconvenient truth is that the authors of the New Testament assume that they have some sort of knowledge of the ancient world. Um, So the two examples that I use are, one, when the Pharisees show up for the first time in each of the Gospels, no one stops to explain who they are. We just assume that they are, that we don't assume, we understand them as part of Jesus's world, but we don't know who they are. I mean, as Christians, we get sort of a traditional understanding of who they are, but we have no idea where they originated. How do they become part of society? They're not in the Old Testament. So where do they come from? Well, the Gospels don't tell us because they assume that you will already know who they are because you are a first century reader, right? Mm -hmm. The second example that I use is the synagogue. Many of my students coming from a New York City background make superficial contact with various Jewish communities. So they know sort of what a synagogue is. They don't know what happens in one, um, but they know that Jewish people go on the Sabbath to a synagogue. So I go to Luke 4 when Jesus goes to the synagogue of Nazareth. And I say, you know, why doesn't Luke stop to tell us what happens in a first century synagogue? Do any of you here know what happens in a first century synagogue? Um, and they'll shake their heads and say, No, we have no idea. Luke assumes that you will have some understanding of what happens. In, so he doesn't stop to say, Hey, listen, reader in 2020, reader in 2021, let me stop and give you a bullet point explanation as to what happens in a synagogue. He doesn't do that because he assumes that you will know, right? The way that mm-hmm. I explain it to my students, and I have to give credit to. Uh, um, again, back to Dr. So Dr. Notley for, for teaching me this, is the, the overriding principle in all of this, in the study of ancient Judaism, the study of, of the New Testament's context, language, faith, culture, these sorts of things, is the incarnation. That God chose to become flesh in a particular time, in a particular environment, speak a particular language, and practice a particular faith. And for most of us, I would say for all of us, initially, we are detached from that culture, from that space by 2,000 plus years. Um, and it's our pleasure, our opportunity, our privilege to now in, in 2020, 2021, to have the resources to be able to look at those texts and begin to put them back in their original context and see what they meant there and then. The mm-hmm. The... The, the distinction that I use with my students is when we read the scripture, we have to, with scriptures, we have to understand that there's a difference between the idea of two and four, not the numbers to us and for us. The scriptures were originally written to a first century audience, but they are written for us. In other words, they are written for us in terms of spirituality, in terms of meaning, in terms of teaching, in terms of authority, but they're originally written to the first century audience. And we need to respect that distinction so that we get the most meaning of what God is telling us in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament.
1: Wow, well, that's great. And um, I, I want to ask a couple things, and I hope I don't forget. I didn't write them down. But but the first thing I want to ask you, when you talk about... You know who was written to—to—to to, to the first-century audience, but for us. Um, I know this isn't your your field of study or expertise necessarily, although uh, Judaism would would fall under this category. But in the Old Testament, you know, there are so many prophecies, so many words uh, that that are made specifically to Israel, mm-hmm. to the you know to the Jewish people. Um, one of the things that I that I sort of butt up against all the time are, you know, are these, are people, and we've all done it. I did it as a pastor for so many years before I sort of fully began to understand this is we take, take every promise to Israel and we, we extract that and, and uh, contextualize it so that it's about us. So that it's about right. the church, this, this whole idea of replacement theology. Yes. Um, And what I like to say, and I would love to hear your opinion on this is we can, we can take promises and, and, um, apply them to our context and to our lives, but not at the expense of the original words uh, and the original recipients of those words. In other words, uh, God still has a plan for the Jewish people. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you hundred um, percent. I think replacement theology as much as, as much criticism as it has received It continues to exist and i think it is a dangerous form of theology in one way the reason it's dangerous is if and this is i tell my students this as well um that the bible is rooted in a real place in a real world real people real issues right and to ignore that you're in danger of being the interpretive authority in other words you interpret the scriptures based on what you perceive the scriptures to be saying and have no anchor into mm-hmm. an actual interpretive foundation secondly in terms of in terms of israel there is no indication in the new testament that god abandons them and and switches lanes and says you know, this is my new people. These guys I could forget about, despite the fact that I gave them all these promises in the Old Testament. Now I'm deciding to change the apple of my eye. We don't have any of that. Um, I was just this last semester teaching a class on Paul, and his letters, where we just read through Paul's letters, talked about them in their Greco-Roman context. And one of the questions we had to ask is, you know, where Paul speaks sort of negatively about, let's say, the law or you know saying the law is sort of a curse what is happening there and how do we deal with that in light of the good things that Paul says about Israel in Romans um saying that Israel's not gone um speaking of Israel being the root of the of the olive tree and i said one of the things we have to contend with is one that god doesn't ever seem to give an indication even in the new testament that he's left israel behind in fact it appears that he plans to com- that to continue those promises that he has the stuff that we get sometimes in paul is a matter of who he's speaking to so for instance in galatians where he's speaking negatively of the law it appears to be that he's speaking specifically to non-jews who are at the time not required to follow the commandments as per se in terms of in terms of the way that jewish people are observant um and and when we have and this is a much larger discussion um could probably be its own podcast um but when we when we see those things we have to when we read them in the context of when they were written we get better understanding that these are not wholesale claims against israel that they are, once they are contextualized, we can see that there's a lot more nuance to the conversation that Paul and the early believers are having regarding non-Jews and Gentiles in light of what Israel is.
1: That's amazing. Um, I, I, I like all of what you're saying there. And I think, uh, I think there is probably a longer discussion. I mean, I could do this all day, but I know that yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we don't we don't have all day today. But hopefully, in the future, we can dive into some of those things a little further. Um, used a term used a term a minute ago, Greco Roman, and I wanted I specifically wanted to ask this question about about the language, uh, and so in in the studies that you do, uh, you know second early second temple and in Judaism when you talk about mm-hmm. about the the roots of Christian faith what kind of challenge does the does the greek language present um, in sort of getting that that full hebrew understanding because um you know I, I know this a lot of times is is kind of thought about you know you look at the new testament right. and you go back to the original language uh, and it's written in greek uh, help our listeners understand you know, how how you sort of make the connection back to the ancient Hebrew and to the, the Jewish understanding?
0: Yeah, so it's, great question. Um, in terms of the Greek, that is the language of our entire New Testament. Um, however, uh, first century Judea was at least a trilingual landscape where we had Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic functioning in that world, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, when Mark in um, in Mark 8 and then the, the raising of uh, the girl that is dead, he says, Talitha Kumi, there's a conversation there as to whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew. For most people, it appears to be Aramaic. The same thing when he heals the deaf and mute man and he says apophata, that is also an Aramaic word. Um, and we also have Hebraisms that appear in the Gospels. So we have evidence that while the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which is the common language of the time, the lingua franca, as you would, um, we also have evidence that there are are at least sources to the gospel or gospel writers that may be thinking or preserving sources from another language, right? Because Mm -hmm. we have Hebraisms, what we call Hebraisms, that in the syntax of the Greek, you can see that it's not normal Greek and fits very well with biblical style Hebrew or Hebrew from the Dead Sea Scrolls, let's say. Um, so we we are able in those cases to say, maybe do a retro version of the Greek, which causes a lot of debate in New Testament scholarship, right? Um, mm. But the fact of the matter is that Evidence suggests, in terms of the parables, in terms of what we have in the Gospels, that when Jesus was among his uh, his innermost circle, that the language he was speaking was Hebrew. It was not Aramaic. It was not Greek. And that really is the hardest hurdle to get over in terms of studying the New Testament at a la- on a language level, right? Because yeah. people will accept the Greek because New Testament is written in Greek. They will accept the Aramaic because Aramaic has become the popular language of Jesus. But they will they will avoid, and there's a complex reasons why they do this, but they will avoid the idea for the most part that Jesus, his contemporaries, at least his disciples, were speaking and functioning in Hebrew. Um, and when you get to, at the Hebrew level, it, it actually can... Um, shed different kinds of light on particular texts. Um, but New Testament scholarship in general, and how we speak about the New Testament at a linguistic level, often misses that one thing. It, and it's a mm-hmm. crucial thing, right? Um, it's one of the few things that we can say that distinguishes Jesus as Jewish, as opposed to being Greek or being someone from farther out, East, you know, an Aramaic speaker, right? If he speaks Hebrew, then he has to be Jewish. I'm not saying that there were that there were non-Jews who could learn Hebrew um, or function in Hebrew, but for the most part, they had Greek and Aramaic. That was the, especially Greek, was the main language of business, main language of commerce. But for someone to come out and speak Hebrew, like Paul does at the end of Acts, when he says he spoke to the people in their language, he spoke Hebrew. That is, uh, it's one of the few markers that we have of someone being Jewish.
1: Thank you. That is one of the best explanations of that that I think I've ever heard. And I want to just make sure I understood you right there. You you talked about the fact that that the way the Greek is used often um, perhaps isn't structured like a Greek speaker would structure it, but, right. but structured more like a Hebrew speaker. Is that what you were saying?
0: Right. Yeah. So... So I see this, you'll see this in in any multilingual environment. So like I have students in my classes who think in Spanish, but write in English, right? Or think in Korean and write in English. And you can see in their English by the syntax, you may not be able to tell what language they're thinking in, but you can see that they're not thinking in English. That English is their second language, but they're thinking in their native language, So there are places in in the Gospels where you can see that the Greek has either a um, oral or um, textual um, syntactical style, which means the way the words are placed, the way the words are connected. It just appears that they're functioning in a different language. And often when we go back to Hebrew sources, um, it's indicative of a Hebrew speaking environment, indicative that that some of the sources I'm not and I'm not. Advocating that any of the gospel writers, particularly knew Hebrew. I'm not sure we can know that, but we can see whatever sources they're using, however they're writing. At some point, we're dealing with a Hebrew speaker.
1: Right. Okay. Thank you. That's that's great. Now um, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I think probably. Uh, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think probably we have some some future podcasts uh, that we could dive into some more of this stuff as long as as long as you're patient enough to uh, you know uh, to help us with these things. That'd but uh, i I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with uh, with Center for Holy Land studies and and how all of that came about first of all. Uh, Amy Flattery is a, a mutual acquaintance of ours, and uh, yes. I think probably you know her a little better than I do. Uh, we've mm-hmm. only connected on the phone and on Zoom, but uh, Amy did a podcast with us back in in November, December, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about the experiences that happened through Center for Holy Land Studies. But how do you get inv- involved initially? First of all, just answer that. How do you get involved initially? Okay. <laughs>
0: Well, I was working on uh, I was working at NYU um, on my doctoral studies, getting very close to the writing portion. Um, I was adjuncting at, at Naya College, um, and I was desirous to start doing trips to Israel, not only for my own edification, for my own studies and learning, but also introducing students to um, that world. Um, now, I had been to Israel, um, several times since 2004, that was my first time, very first time in Israel. Um, and in 2012, um, the person that connected us again—I'm going to go back to, to Dr. Notley—he uh, connected uh, me with the CHLS because they were looking for teachers that would that would take groups overseas, introduce them to the land, participate in their learning. And it was looking for teachers that specifically worked, and were 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 scholars in the ancient world um, that could go there and say, "Okay, look at this stone here. What does this stone mean in the ancient context, and why is it important to you?" Because not every stone in Israel is important to everyone, right? For mm-hmm. for for us, it was how do we how do we introduce um, Christians to that world, and how do we allow them even on their own through our instruction to come to an understanding that where they step, where they move, the language they hear, the food, they eat, the places that they are, that they are going into are exceptionally important to their formation as believers. So they called me and it was, it was, it was not, it was, they didn't even need to ask. They should have just sent me an email with my first trip because um, <laughs> I was ready to go. But 2012, I did my first trip with them. It was um, a trip they have in May called Bible Lands, which is a three-week trip primarily for college students, Um, and that was a lot of fun. You can go on it and get credit, and that was my first trip, and from there, um, I've been working with them since 2012.
1: That's awesome. Um, Dream job, right? I mean, if you could do something... Part-time, on the side, just kind of... Yeah, it's great. uh, Why why wouldn't you do that? Now, uh, of course, the last year has been a bit of a challenge, we all understand. But uh, we're hoping for better days ahead. Uh, I read an article the other day that... um, the Ministry of Tourism in Israel is hoping, hoping to start letting uh, tour groups under very specific conditions back in, possibly as soon as April, which uh, wow. seems a little bit optimistic to me. But hey, um, I'll hope along with them because I miss being there, man. I uh, yeah, I agree. This last uh, this last year has been awful. This I, is uh, the
0: last. This last year is the is the first time I haven't been there. In any year since 2012,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I would have to say that's that's probably true for me as well. Uh, but I I normally go for four times a year, maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe a, a total of about twelve weeks, depending on what we have going on. But uh, right. it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year. Uh, okay, so you go, you help students understand uh, sort of the roots of faith from the perspective of being on the ground in Israel. Um, it's. It's an amazing experience. Obviously, it's a lot of fun. But but why is it so important? Uh, this is the question I want to sort of get to. Why, why do you feel that it's so important for theology students in particular? I mean, this is where where I come from. We're trying to get a program like this going in, in Canada. And uh, I feel like, like anybody who's going to be a pastor, anybody who's going to teach the Word, teach the Bible, needs to go and have this experience on the ground uh, in Israel. Talk to me about why you feel that's so important. Well,
0: I will say this. You know, when I started in 2012 with college students, um, I wasn't very good because it is completely different from teaching in a class. The land Mm -hmm. being your classroom is just another world. And that was very formative for me, right? As a teacher, it made me a better teacher. Uh, it gave me um, greater understanding of the scriptures. And the reason that is, is because the Bible as a, as a whole, from, from you know, Old Testament all the way to Revelation, General Revelation is so immersed in the ancient world from the roads to the cities, to how people lived, to the language they spoke, right? And when you read mm-hmm. the Bible... Um, detached from that world or detached from ever seeing that world, you don't often get that at a reader's level. So if you're on your desk opening the scriptures and they're speaking about, you know, Gibeah, well, who cares about Gibeah? Why are they speaking about Gibeah? Or someone speaks about Jerusalem, you may know it's important, but you may not know the things that make it important. Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, Uh, Paul in the temple, all these various things that are inundated in geographical locations. You don't get a sense of it when you're in a classroom. Now, for me, in my class, I give presentations for every book that we do. And I try to um, fill it up with as many pictures as I can, videos and pictures to try to get, you know, people familiarized with what I'm talking about. Um, But it's nothing like being there, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, you right. can point. There's I, I don't there's some things I can't explain in class. There's some things that that if I said I tell my class, listen, if we were at the temple mount on the southern steps, right? Um, which are the steps where pilgrims went up and down to the temple, like Jesus and the disciples, this would make so much sense to you so much quicker. I could explain to you. Look at this, look at this, and you would get it in an instant, right? Um uh-huh. Secondly, to understand something about biblical life does not happen when you open a book. It happens by actually, now now, to be fair, we do use the bus a lot, but to walk where they walked, to be where they were um, is something that is spiritually formative, intellectually formative, um, and it's impossible to do it anywhere else. I mean, I've, I've also done trips to um, Turkey um, and Greece, and it's great to go to those places. Turkey's gorgeous, gorgeous. Greece, amazing. But it's not exactly the same thing. There's huh. something about the land of Israel in terms of Jesus' environment, the disciples' environment, to see the hills of the Galilee, to see the plains of the Galilee, to drive from the Galilee to Jerusalem, and then think to yourself, Jesus walked this. <laughs> Jesus walked this length. <laughs> he may have stopped, but he walked the whole way. Right. Um, it's just, I I tell my students, and I think my students sometimes think that I'm just like a car salesman, that I'm just trying to give them the wrap to buy the trip. But I said a trip to Israel for a student, for anybody, but especially for a student of the Bible and a theology student. It is life-changing. You can never go back to reading the scriptures in the same way again. As a matter of fact, going on a trip uh, sometimes, often, turns the Bible 3D. It goes from pages to actual visuals of what that world was like. On top of that, being in the land of israel itself with its people and its foods are 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 something to do you know it adds to the whole trip it adds to the whole thing there is sure. nothing like um you know being at a site and opening the scriptures and being able to see before you where these things happened um for theology students i know sometimes we we have sort of um not everywhere, but sometimes we have this tendency for theology students to sort of be book learners, right? Um, and learn theology in the books and then, you know, learn them in the Bible, you know, read sources, this sort of thing. Um, but I also th- I also think that theology um, needs to be somewhat based on practical things in the scriptures. We have so much theology in the Bible built off, you know, how people lived and what they ate and what they said and all this other stuff that right. making visual physical contact with that is absolutely um, it's, it's just, it's, it's
1: uncomparable. I agree. You don't have to do the the car salesman thing for me. I, yeah. I'm in love with, uh, <laughs> I'm in love with Israel and I want everybody else to be too. I mean, that's, that's uh, a lot of the reason why we do these podcasts and, and why we have the ministry that we have. Uh, of course, you know, we, we go with another perspective as well. We're, we're wanting people to connect with what God is doing in, in the land of Israel today. Yeah. And uh, the, the, Congregations that are there, the ministries that are involved uh, on the ground in the land of Israel—that's who we're who we're helping and supporting and sort of holding up their hands. But uh, I just I, I think it's so critical, and and you know we've made this case to some of the colleges here in Canada that are connected with my denomination, and um, we actually had our first trip was planned for last August, and uh, we. Of yeah. course, uh we're not able to go. I had 35 students that uh wow. you know, were were very disappointed and and so we and realistically we're looking probably now at uh, uh the spring of 2022 just because mm-hmm. of the the fact that it was our first and the fact that this you know, the college is trying to figure out how to do this for credit and how to fit it into their their calendar and all those kind of things. Right. But anyway very big huge disappointment that we couldn't bring these students because sure. I, I do feel so strongly that uh, I mean it, it changed my life it changed my mm-hmm. my ministry trajectory everything um, the way I understood the Bible all those things that you said Same um, yeah what I what I love about reading the Bible now is that is that i can't read it without a picture in my mind mm-hmm. I, I cannot you know i can no longer just read those words and not and not picture where it happened and and some of the some of the the cultural sort of context that that helped to inform it and i think that that's so important for any student of the bible any teacher of the bible any preacher of the word and so um i i really appreciate you kind of laying that out for us and i i hear your passion and i yeah. I, you know, I, I, I understand it because I've, I've lived it myself. And uh, if you're listening today, we just like go to Israel, whether you're a student of the Bible or not go to Israel, but, yeah, but uh, if, if you're studying to be in ministry, if you want to, if you want to teach the Bible and help people to understand it so they can apply uh, the truths of scripture to their own life, then you need to go. Um, even, you know, even just, a. um uh, simple understanding of the the feasts of the Lord, uh, you know, help us to to see what Jesus came to do in so many ways, and I I love being able to talk about that in the upper room, which you know we're not really sure is the actual upper room, but right, it you know you you stand there and you you say to people, listen, this when Jesus took the cup when he took the bread, this was. This wasn't sort of communion as we know it. This was Passover. Right. And right. there's just so many things that are layered in there that uh, that tell us about what Jesus came to do. So, uh, wow, this has been great. I want I wanted to just say I thank agree. you for taking the time today. And um, I think I'll probably... You know, we'll we'll probably pause here and think about future conversations. But I I really appreciate you uh, you know taking the time. I appreciate Amy introducing us. And um, same here, my pleasure. I guess if there was one last question that I would want to ask, it would be this: uh, What's what's your favorite place in Israel to teach on? What's what's the one site that kind of really connects it all back. Oh Probably not fair because I didn't give you a chance to prepare for this because there's so many good <laughs> ones. But you know what? Just it tell, changes me, tell me about the, one.
0: Yeah, it changes all the time. Um, Let me see. I haven't been there in a while. Um, you know, when we get to Jerusalem, it's, it's really fun because Jerusalem has so many archaeological remains from the first century. So... Mm you know to to go to the mount of olives and overlook jerusalem and speak about um you know jesus's um last week is fairly powerful one of the things that's powerful is you know if you go if you go to the top of the mount of olives you can see over jerusalem and then if you walk down what is part of the traditional you know it's not the Via Dolorosa, but it's part of the, the way the way of suffering. But it's part of the way that that pilgrims walk down on Easter down the Mount of mm-hmm. Olives, and they stop at a at a chapel called uh, called Dominus Flavit, um, which means the Lord wept. Which is my wife's favorite place, other than Tell Dan in the north, which is a nature reserve for the biblical city of Dan. That is, mm-hmm. she loves that place, right? But what we do is you get a beautiful sight a beautiful look over the Temple Mount because you're still higher in elevation. So you can still see over where the temple was. You can see now where is the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque, but right there where the temple was sitting. And we, at that point, make a connection to stuff that we have been teaching since, we were, since the trip has been in the Galilee. So one of the things that we do in the Galilee that we touch on, and this hopefully... Um, will form itself into my next book on charity and the gospels in ancient Judaism is we keep touching on this idea that part of what the kingdom of God is all about is taking care of those that are in need. And we see it throughout the gospels, even though we don't always pay attention to it um, or don't see it in that way, but that all the elements of Jesus' ministry continue to be pointing in that direction, right? And that in the ancient world, we had more than one conception of what a Messiah was going to be. And Jesus draws his own messianic self-identity to some of them and pulls away from others. And the one that he pulls to is the one that tells the people of God to work justice and righteousness on earth. And that justice and righteousness comes in the form of helping those that are in need, which is why one of the great commandments is love your, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Hmm. Um, and we see this throughout the scriptures. We see it in Matthew 6. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of Matthew 6. We see it in Matthew 24. Um, and when we get to Jerusalem we say, even, even on his last day, one of the things that Jesus says in in Luke is, had you known the things that made for peace? And that language that he uses there goes back to what we've been instructing the whole time on the trip in the, in the Galilee. That what Jesus ex- expects to some extent of his followers, and I'm not saying this is this whole kit and caboodle, but this is a large part of it, is for us to find a way, um, and he's given us a way, for us to find a way to work peace on earth through helping those that are in need through helping those um, that are marginalized. Um, And it's great to come down the whole trip. You know, you spend four or five days in the Galilee and you keep sort of, and you you sort of are scared that you're just beating a dead horse. And then you get Mm. to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is one of the places that I, there's three places in my life that I tell people that when I get there, I do a big sigh, sort of like a relief. I'm here. I'm happy, right? One of those places is when I come home and my daughter's here, my wife is here. All right, this is a safe place. The other place, funny enough, is Yankee Stadium because I'm a huge New York Yankees fan, right? <laughs> so it's great to just sit down and take in a game. Yeah. The third place is Jerusalem. Whenever we enter Jerusalem, I get that sigh, that sense. This, this is a good place, right? This is a safe place. It's a sigh of relief. Um, not that I'm worried about traveling anywhere else in Israel. It's just it's just the culmination of our journey. And the way we set up trips is to experience uh, God and Jesus on that journey. So that's why we go to the Galilee and, and then Jerusalem. So when we get to Jerusalem to be able, not only in Dominus Flavid, but also the Church of All Nations, which is the foot of Mount of, Ol- the foot of, Mount of Olives, and in other places, to tie together that message is something that is, uh, very endearing to me and I love to do.
1: Well, that's amazing. And, uh, I, I like that that's one of your favorite spots. It, the, the overlook there, the view is incredible. kind of halfway down, halfway down the Mount of Olives. Uh, we're always, you know, worried about some of our older pilgrims when we do those tours that they're going to slip on the Hill. And, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And of course there's, uh, there's also the gentleman there who, uh, who loves to take your money if you're willing to give it to him. You've probably met the same guy that we have as well at the gates there. But uh, anyhow, that's, yeah, yeah, that's part of but Israel. But here's, here's the thing. That's yeah. That is that is kind of Israel. Um, I I was going on a, a bit of a track there. Oh, I know you. You talked about this whole idea of uh, charity, charity in in the gospels and and. Um, um, I forget exactly how you referred to it, but you said it's going to be a maybe your new book. I'm excited to hear about that. Uh, but it's a great segue into, um, you, you know, what our ministry is all about because of all of the uh, humanitarian aid and the help that we give mm-hmm. for Holocaust survivors and and so many who are in poverty in the land of Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. Israel has one of the highest levels of child poverty in the world, and uh, so it's a great way for me to just kind of remind everybody, you know, that uh, we're a ministry and we we help these these organizations who are in Israel, and if you want to engage with us in that, we would love to have you do that, uh, Doctor. Garcia, so great to have you with us today, and uh, so nice to meet you. I, I want to just say thank you, and I hope that we can have some future conversations, maybe one about uh, some of what you just shared, because I, I think that's that's a-, a very sort of great way for us to talk about, you know, what we do in in the present tense as mm-hmm. believers, and uh, and how that it stems from uh, a lot of what, what Jesus talked about. But um, yeah, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, and uh, God bless you. Happy New Year! I know that uh, you know when people listen might not necessarily be New Year, but uh, uh, we just want to say Happy New Year to you and your family, and may God bless you in the work that you do.
0: Well, it's great to be here. Um, I look forward to uh, future conversations, and happy to meet you. and And uh, I've been reading about your ministries and. They're absolutely amazing and inspiring. Um, And I look forward to uh, speaking to you again.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Nice to meet another Jeff as well. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Take care. God bless. Wow, what a wealth of information that Dr. Jeffrey Garcia has shared with us today. And I hope you've enjoyed this first podcast of 2021. Uh, I'm excited because I believe that this podcast will lead to lots of other times that we can learn together from Dr. Garcia, but also from some of his colleagues like Dr. Stephen Notley and others. And so I want you to stay tuned. This is gonna be a great year for our podcasts. We're looking forward to uh, discussing all things Israel as they relate to the Christian faith and to the church. And so great to have you with us today. I was particularly interested in Dr. Garcia's comments about how the kingdom of God is so connected to helping those in need. And uh, I want to just key in on that again, because as you know, we are a charitable organization here in Canada and also in the United States, and we are doing our very best to help ministries in the land of Israel who are doing the work of the kingdom there. We want to uh, be able to help fund them and the ministries that they do and the, the practical needs that they have while we hold up their hands in prayer and continue to support them in this way. And so if you would like to be involved in that, I would encourage you go to our website firstcenturyfoundations.com forward slash donate. And we would just uh, be happy to be able to engage with you in that way. You can give here in Canada and in the United States and be received for your giving. And we're so grateful that you might think about engaging with us in that way. Thank you so much. God bless you today. It's been great to have you with us here on the podcast. And remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel.